Richard Ver is the head and curator of manuscripts at the Rare Books and Special Collections Division of the McGill University Libraries in Montreal. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much, Nigel. Pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to be in here among all these books. We started talking about some of the collections that you have within the confines of the library, one in particular, Stone and Kimball. Perhaps we could start off by talking about that kind of collecting. Well, the Stone and Kimball collection is part of or a subsection of our Colgate History of Printing collection. It's there because it shows, in a fairly comprehensive way, the kinds of books that they were publishing. And that particular section of the Colgate collection deals with examples of printing. So uh, while a lot of the material is late 19th century and early 20th century, there are examples of work by earlier printers So it's really to give an overview of techniques, how things look, if you really want to know what a 17th century book looks like. Yes, of course, we've got lots of others, but coming into this collection, you know, you can focus quite quickly and and see the Stone and Kimball collection is an example of a a very interesting publisher at the end of the 19th century in, in the United States. It's useful not only for its own material, which is really quite interesting and attractive, the presentation. A lot of 19th century, late 19th century printing, until you get to the 1890s, is quite frankly pretty crappy. So here are two men who decide, well, like a lot of things that begin in college dormitories, of which we've had experience more recently, they think, hmm, well, maybe we could do something interesting here. And so they did. And the design some of the authors that they supported. Bliss uh, Carmen was one. Yes, and Roberts, I believe, too, uh, mm-hmm. were both published by them. They're part of that late 19th century literary world, but also, I'm not sure whether we really want to qualify it as fine printing. Uh, Commercial fine, fine printing. printing. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So the collection itself, it was acquired in the 1970s, mm-hmm. but it was acquired as a lot. We purchased it probably from a book dealer who had put the collection together. So there's not much, I think, that in this particular case that you could say about collecting. Uh, presumably the book dealer had the bibliography in front of them. By Kramer. Yes, yeah. and said, well, I'll just go after it. And of course, yeah. that's one of the things that book dealers do. Yeah. You know, They build the collections in the hopes that they will find an institution usually, but also sometimes private collectors who would purchase it. So the dealers are having as much fun as anyone else. Yes, you yeah. know, and I get all the time proposals that, what, two weeks ago, a Margaret Atwood collection from a dealer. Now, we didn't pursue that, but, you know, that's the kind of thing that very often happens. There's another kind of collecting, which we have touched on, and that's really kind of the individual who has a subject that they're interested in, and they go about it in a sometimes systematic way, but I suspect that often it's, oh, hey, I kind of like that. You know, so they, they add it. They, they kind of know what they're doing. But a lot of collectors, it's really quite eclectic. It's a chance. You may have an idea in the back, you know, and you're kind of ticking off a mental list. Also, the other thing you want is once you've compiled or generated a critical mass, mm. that that critical mass will, by looking closely at it and making comparisons within it, that you'll be able to come up with something that's new and original. Well, exactly, and they very often generate new questions that you pursue and say, oh yes, I 
I never thought about that. But, you know, I've seen enough. Oh, hey, isn't that interesting? You know, would you, you begin saying, well, I collect children's books? Or, uh, interestingly enough, one of the collections we have here, this is the Norman Friedman Boy Scout collection. And we're one of the only academic libraries in the whole of North America that actually has a Boy Scout collection. He was a scoutmaster. He added the Baden Powell's, some of the early editions of the whatever the Boy Scout manual is. And actually, recently, we've had another gift from another scoutmaster here in Montreal, which actually includes a two or three manuscript journals kept by Boy Scouts because they had a a program where they went out. And mm-hmm. So that's, you know, kind of a different kind of collecting. And I can see, from looking at that, this is a significant swath of the population that's going to be influenced by what's in these books. Yeah, I don't know, from the library point of view, we're probably passive about Boy Scouts, but I could see somebody who was interested in scouting really getting quite interested and collecting a variety of materials, and that would lead on to, well, how does scouting manifest itself in, in, in wherever, society. Right? Yeah, exactly. in society and, yeah. and, and other areas. Collecting itself, is, uh, each individual person who kind of gets the bug mm-hmm. probably approaches it somewhat differently. Yeah, there's an interesting line, isn't there, between if you have an interest in a topic and you, you want to read about it, but you also want to collect. And so does the collector buy it because at some point he wants to read it? or because he just likes having it all. Or I think from my own perspective, it's, well, I am interested in the content. I'm also interested in the object. At some point, I do want to do something with all these books. But as I say, the, the line it sort of goes from one extreme to the other. Yeah, I guess. Well, yes, I think that's, that's perfectly true. We have a quite large body of material, which I call the Hunt and Fishing Collection, mm-hmm. but it's really sporting mm-hmm. books, and mm-hmm. we put together various batches of material that had been given to the library over the years and nobody really wanted to touch. So I said, well, I think we could do something with this. But part of it was a collection of books that had been put together basically on fishing by uh, Lewis Reeford here in Montreal in the first half of the 20th century. And there's a really quite fascinating materials. And I suspect that he started off, well, I like to fish, and I think he was involved in a, a fishing camp, perhaps on the North Shore, although the Reefer Gardens are down there on the Gas Bay coast. Mm-hmm. It went from that to, oh, hey, I really am interested in putting together a body of material on fishing. It's beautiful illustration of fish, and, and I imagine. Fish, and yes. And mm-hmm. So I suspect that you're perfectly right. You start with, well, I'm kind of interested in this, and then you get a little bit wonky, I think, almost, <laughs> because I think all collectors are a little bit. And you start acquiring material because it, it fills out a larger picture. You referred to the, the fact that your phone rings often with dealers and others approaching you with collections that they're hoping you'll accept uh, either buy or as a donation. I think that's something that comes into the mind of a lot of collectors and their children. Mm. Okay, I've got this body of books. I don't want to see them picked over during an estate sale. I'd really like them to go somewhere. What advice would you give to the collector to make their collection as as appealing as possible to an institution like yours? Well, I guess there are really two approaches. There are lots of collectors who who have that kind of idea in their minds. However, surprisingly enough, there are a significant number of collectors who really want to have their books recirculated, and they have said so. I had so much joy out of collecting Mm -hmm. them, I want somebody else to have 
like throwing the fish back like into it. In yes, exactly. So there, there are both. But I would think, as an institution, what we're really interested in is probably some intellectual rigor. It has some kind of thought behind it and coherence. And the other thing, which is also, I guess, key here, is that it doesn't duplicate in any significant way what we already have. So, to come back to Stone and Kimball, we probably would not be interested in your collection, unless, of course, there was something really unusual about it. Mm -hmm. You know, that every single copy was signed by the publishers or had all kinds of letters inserted into them or something like that. But, you know, we basically had that collection, so it would be very difficult to justify accepting another. Now, there's always going to be a little bit of duplication, or, or their chances are, but it really has to have some kind of consistency, some thought given to it, something that is an academic subject. But that's really not true. I would have no problems accepting a, a collection uh, that was of significant depth on knitting, a, a collection that documents knitting practices over the past 250 years or something. I could see all kinds of possibilities for academic research based on something like that. Just and, again, because you know, we talked about the impact of, of scouting on young men and, and how they blossom into society. Same sort of idea, I guess. Knitting was a, was a pretty common practice. Yes. And so learning about that would perhaps what? Give you some insight uh, into Well, all kinds of perhaps d domestic economy. A very good example of, of this kind of thing, it seems to me, is we have a, quite a large collection of cookbooks. Yeah. Mm. I often speak to uh, groups of architecture students, particularly in this, in this case, and that's one of the things I t talk to them about, are the possibilities for, in the history of architecture of cookbooks. It doesn't seem immediately obvious, but Mrs. Beaton, for example, the household management in the 19th century, assumes that basically anybody who's using her book has three or four live-in servants. Well, they have to sleep someplace. By after the First World War, you might have a daily. So the domestic architecture is going to change. You don't need all those servant bedrooms or, or whatever. You might need a small closet for the daily to be able to sit down and have a cup of tea privately. Mm -hmm. So it's not immediately obvious, but we're also, of course, seeing other changes in domestic architecture because now most women work. You know, the, how the kitchen and, and other things are arranged uh, reflect those different social realities. Mm. And I, sorry, in the type of, obviously, the type of meals that are prepared. Well, yes, uh, and which are reflected in the, in the recipes. Yeah. So from that, you can extrapolate. It took a lot of people to make this, this or, or, or no one. Oh, yes, or, you know, the, the clearly to do this kind of cooking, though the wife has to spend most of her time in the kitchen. So, you know, you can extrapolate from these, and, and I'm not quite sure what you could do with knitting. So what you're, what you're suggesting then is the collector should follow has their an interest. interest. Yeah, has an interest in knitting, but it shouldn't just sit there. It shouldn't just be, okay, I'm going to get as much as I can on knitting. You would suggest that they come up with some kind of premise or yes, or thinking about more than just, well, the modern knitting books. Uh, I mean, that could be interesting, but uh, we're probably going to be more interested if you've got some 19th century examples. and uh, So showing, a, showing evolution. Evolution. There may be different traditions. I mean, certainly we know that the Irish knitting 
Well, and it wasn't just women in Ireland. The fishing sweaters were knitted by men. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of, of possibilities there. So when it comes to the collector using intellectual rigor, we talk about looking at how things have changed over time, the impact that they might have on society, any other... But of course, too, some of that is my job. You, You say, well, I have collected 600 books on knitting. I need to be able to look at that and say, oh, yes, there is an intellectual coherence. There is enough material here that... Yes, it has research potential. The collector doesn't really need to, you know, I mean, it, it can be helpful if they articulate that, but that's partly my job, looking at materials and saying, oh, yes, I can see potential there. Thank you. You have done an excellent job. And well, we will take your donation and give you a tax, tax receipt. receipt. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes, I have, well, that's very nice, but we really can't do very much with it. Another institution might, but sometimes, you know, I do have to tell people about the McGill Book Fair. Oh. <laughs> yes. And uh, I've had a donation that came in. Uh, we're just finally listing the material, and it is kind of all over the map. There are three medieval manuscripts, two incunables, two 16th century books, two 17th century books, and stuff uh, that will, in fact, go to the McGill Book Fair. So right across the board. Right across the board. And there's some other things in between which may go to the main library collection. But I think people, too, have to be realistic about what they are collecting. I mean, I would hate for somebody to collect with the purpose of money-making, for example. Collecting has to be a personal pleasure. If someone starts off that way, I don't know that you really need to think too much about the end result. Once you're there, yes. But, I mean, we often find examples of people who've collected something. Oh, okay, it's complete get rid of it, start something else. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, yes, fine, but that seems a little bit strange to me. Yes and no. I I collect the English uh, Governor General's Fiction Award winners, so that's a finite list dating back to 1937. When it's done well, okay, I do want to have it around. I want to maybe try and read a good portion of it, but I would at some point like to either sell it or donate it or something. I mean, that's a a kind of a finite. On the other hand, every year there's... There's more. It's true, yeah. It's never <laughs> uh, complete. And obviously, people, their their interests change. All I'm kind of wondering about posing the question, I guess, is this very fixated, well, I have a list, and I check them off, and once I've checked them all off, I'm done. And to my mind, that's not providing much in the way of personal pleasure. I mean, you might as well be collecting... No, 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 there's the hunt, though. There is yeah, the there hunt. is the hunt. There is the hunt. But I, again, you know, I'm, I'm here busy spouting theories, but I think my real theory is that collecting is so personal that it's going to be different for each individual, and there are some people who are going to be passionate about lists, and, yeah. well, that's fine. But it doesn't appeal to me particularly. I'm speaking with Richard Ver, who is the head and curator of manuscripts at the Rare Books and Special Collections Division of the McGill University Library in Montreal. One of your passions or your areas of interest is the collector themselves. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Well, yes, I think it's almost more interesting to know about the person than the books, and particularly, I guess, what you can learn about the individual from the materials that they've collected and their interactions in the community. So one thing, obviously, you would assume is that he had a certain income to be able to yes. to, to well, gather a collection. That, that'd be one thing. What 
typical traits have you been able to determine, assuming, as you've said, that each collection is, is a personal reflection, but the psychology of the collector, have you been able to kind of come up with any overarching theories about them? Often the collection uh, reflects, you know, some personality traits. A very comfortable upper-middle-class reader, but I can think of or other situations where the driving force is just wanting examples. I'm thinking about some of the work I have done on, on um, Canadian collectors of incunabula in the 19th century. A very good example, I think, of, of the bibliophile is somebody like Gerald Hart, who was a Montreal businessman. He was one of the Trois-Rivières uh, Hart Jewish family, and he put together a really major collection quite early it was sold in Boston in 1890, and he had everything. Canadiana, but he also had medieval manuscripts, incunabula. In those days, the McGill Library really did not have a budget for buying books, so the Board of Governors actually voted a special fund of $1,000 so that McGill could purchase materials at this sale. Down in Boston? In Boston. How would this guy go about getting all these books? Would he well, travel around? This is sometimes, yes, it's clearly people who have traveled. Mm. I don't know that Hart particularly traveled. In other cases, as today, people were in contact with booksellers by mail. Yeah. By mail. Mm. That's how business was carried on. And they would either be sent lists or, or other kinds of or catalogs. And I think we forget about how extensive networks were for the acquisition of books. And that's uh, something that interests you. Yes, yes. Well, this is the other thing. I mean, it's always a, an interesting question. Where, in heaven's name, did they find this? Well, in the case of Frederick Griffin, because he recorded in some of his books where he acquired them, actually that has led to the identification of at least two other Montreal book collectors. So you, you find local networks of exchange, but you also find international. So Gerald Hart would be a perfect example of that. And as I say, McGill purchased materials there. We still haven't managed to identify all of them, but we're every so often thinking, you, because you can tell, I mean, there's a very clear auction mark in the books. But the other person who had apparently great fun at this sale was Isabella Stewart Gardner. At the same sale? At the same sale, oh, and yeah. I, I know what she bought, because mm. the museum has provided me with a list of it. Mm. And she obviously had a field day, buying bindings and other, and other kinds of things. From she, the Hart Collection? Yes, or? that sale in Boston okay. in 1890. I think that points up two things, just the whole question of Hart's own collection, but the quality mm -hmm. of what he was collecting. When the collection came on the market, there was great competition between auctioneers in New York and Boston for this material. Why does this interest you, specifically? Oh, I, I suspect it's something, a cog that has slipped someplace. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious about people, and I can see in other instances where, you know, the collecting quite clearly indicates a certain uh, self-perception of somebody who thinks they're really quite important. Self-important or, or yeah. grandiose? Or I think so. I think there are occasions like that. Because you, you do hear about these great barons of industry, you know, most of them did peel off a few They million. collected something. You're thinking that that's a trait of a collector? In some cases, they want a monument. <laughs> I suppose. Eh? They want a monument. But, I mean, you could say that of publishers, too. Yes, I, but 
I would suspect that the raison d'etre for most publishers is to make money. If we can do that by providing a, an aesthetically pleasing object, we will do so. But the bottom line, I would suggest, in most cases, is, is the priority. Yeah, but they must get into the business as opposed to, you know, big beans. They, they must get into that business for... Well, it, it depends. I mean, thinking about Stone and Kimball, yes, they, obviously there was an interest there that went beyond just making money. But, I mean, on the other hand, there are publishers who've been in business for 200 years and you inherit it, you know, like Longmans, for example, yeah. until they were bought up by whomever it was. That there are those kinds of things. Perhaps more in the U.K., than, uh, than in Canada, although, you know, there's kind of a long genealogy, I'm thinking about the Methodist book group. There are some dynasties like this, but I think most cases, I mean, if you're not worried about the bottom line, you're probably not going to last very long. <laughs> well, in fact, Kimball and Stone didn't last that long. It's, it's sad because what they produced was so appealing and attractive. So, again, I'm questioning you from the standpoint of a collector your advice to the collector, but also your insight into the soul of a collector. You've mentioned that there's perhaps a wish to convey to the world that they have some importance. Uh, in some cases. What else? My advice to the collector would be do something that gives you pleasure and interest. Don't worry, particularly at the beginning, too much about the long term. The important thing is, is what it's doing for you. If what you have done can later serve another purpose, a gift to an institution or something, that's marvelous. But that really should not be your aim. Your aim should be doing something that pleases you. And typically that revolves around things that you love to do, like fish. Yes, or read, yeah. or knit. And that's what's important. Thanks for your thoughts on collecting and publishing and fish and and other topics. I've been speaking with Richard Ver, who's the head and curator of manuscripts at the Rare Books and Special Collections Division of the McGill University Library in Montreal. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Nigel.